Hello, and welcome to episode three of the Jobs and Science interview series. I'm Artem Babian. Did you ever wonder what it's like to be absolutely ahead of your field? To be the field? Well, that's what Dr. Elaine Fuchs probably feels like because she's far head and shoulders advanced of anyone else when it comes to skin stem cells. She pioneered the field. And we're very lucky that she came to the BC Cancer Research Center as our keynote speaker. And as part of that, agreed to do a Jobs and Science interview series and allowed us to record it and share it with you. So please stay tuned. This is probably one of the most interesting and rebellious interviews we've had so far. Dr. Elaine Fuchs really lays down what it's like to be a scientist on the fringe. So stay tuned. Enjoy. And hopefully some of the warm life lessons from this interview will wash over you and translate into your next nature paper. Okay, take it easy. Damn, it feels good to be a gangster. start our jobs and science interview series um, so I'm seeing a lot of new faces which is great um, this is the grass pods jobs and science interview series just a brief introduction to what we do the idea here is that this is a time and space where we can talk to dr. Elaine Fuchs about her career in the sciences so I'll, I'm gonna be kind of facilitating the interview starting it off but really it's it's your chance to ask your questions about, you know, how do I choose my postdoc supervisor? What do you look for in a grad student? These types of things. So if at any point you guys come up with a question, just raise your hand and, you know, I'll be happy to kind of direct your question. And Dr. Elaine will, uh, will be happy to answer. All right. All right, so what I like to kind of start these interviews off with is just a general question, and that is, what got you into the sciences? Yeah, how far back do you want to start? <laughs> <laughs> well, when, when did you know you wanted to be a scientist? Uh, well, it, it went intermittently between about the age of five <laughs> <laughs> onward. Um, I actually think that, I think that actually every, every kid is probably really interested in science, at least up until the age of five. Um, if you ask if you ask a five or six year old do they want to go out in the field and go find butterflies, find leaves, find something in nature, or do they want to sit and read a history book or an English book, I think you're going to get your answer. And, and so I think that what happens progressively is essentially a silencing of science. It starts out being activated in everybody's brain. And Pardon? Yeah, so I mean, it's a good question, but what do we do in classrooms? But then it goes, it really starts to that educational aspect, and I think it actually has a lot to do with it. And so I grew up in a family where my father was a geochemist, he works on meteorites, and um, he would take us out in the fields, we would go to these uh, quarries in, in Illinois, and um, and uh, he'd 
ask us to go collect rocks all day long. And so we collect <laughs> rocks. And I think he would seed our bags with, my sister and I uh, would seed our bags with a rock that he knew would have a fossil in it because I have no clue as to how we were going to pick a rock with a fossil, but that's what my father's charge was to us. And then, you know, he'd crack them open that night and then we'd find a trilobite or something in our, in our rock bag. And, and, um, and so it was things like that or, or having a, a mother who was making a butterfly net to keep us busy out in the fields and all. And I think those kinds of natural interests um, really gravitated and in a family where where um, where your parents are buying you science books or they're bringing home thyroid hormone when you read about this. I read about these experiments where, where people took um, thyroid hormone and they would treat tadpoles with them and they would metamorphosize quickly and sort of begging my father to to get, bring me some thyroid hormone. <laughs> of course, you know, I mean, you don't know necessarily about um, about uh, the concept of a mole or an animal <laughs> at that point. So, so there are some failed experiments that happen a lot of that. <laughs> but, um, but I think it's, it's, it's really that. It's if you, if you have some kind of motivation and some kind of microenvironment where, where this, your, your natural scientific instincts are stimulated rather than silenced, then, uh, then uh, for me it was, it was kind of that natural development. And you did an undergrad in chemistry, right? Yeah, so not biology, so why? Um, so um, I think that had to do perhaps more with my obstinance than, uh, than anything else, but there were a few motivating factors. The first was that I remember taking chemistry in high school and I, I was devastated on my first chemistry exam where I came home and I had a D on on my chemistry exam and I was absolutely literally in tears and my father says, oh, well, that's okay, not everybody has to be a chemist. And I was really irritated with him. I still, you know, to this day, I still remember that. It's like, I wanted to know what a mole was. I didn't want somebody to tell me I didn't have to be a chemist. And, um, and, so, uh, and so I think, you know, those kinds of sort of seeds um, struck with me that I really like chemistry and, and all. But then the other side of that was is that at University of Illinois, where I went to undergraduate school, you could either be a straight chemistry major. If you were a biology major, you either had to be a biology major for teachers or an advanced biology major. And to me, advanced sounded frightening. And, um, and so, I, so I chose chemistry and, of course, took nothing but physical chemistry and advanced mathematics and physics courses. And uh, I think the road, most people would think that that road was a lot stiffer than taking the road of biology. But I never took any biology as an as a undergraduate because, because of that. I got hooked on the chemistry side of it. So when did you decide to pursue biology? Yeah. Um, I think there it had more to do, there were two things. One is that I liked the idea of doing something medically relevant. And this was in a day that um, was before the sort of interfaces that now exist for all of you where uh, there are great opportunities in terms of biology and chemistry interfaces. Um, there's some exciting uh, uh, interfaces between physics and, and biology. And, uh, 
And at the time that I got interested in going into biochemistry, um, because it was more medically oriented, the kind of options that were available were the kinds of crystallizations that people were doing at the time were on enzymes. And to me, it's sort of, this is a solid enzyme and enzyme works in solution and, and here's this enzyme structure and I was feeling so what? And I hope nobody's <laughs> 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 enzyme structure. <laughs> but, um, but, but the, the structural biology questions, the, the field hadn't advanced far enough for, for there to be some really interesting and exciting structural biology questions. And, um, and so I, so I uh, tiptoed into biochemistry and trying to get my feet wet at a laboratory bench. How did you choose your first supervisor in biology? Mm. Uh, he taught intermediate metabolism, and I really liked his teaching methods. And, um, and I would have to say that that was a bad reason for choosing somebody to work with. I mean, it's not the reason why you want to choose to work with somebody at the bench. Um, but for me, um, it, it ended up, I, I would say, honestly being the motivating force. And uh, I would say looking back on that experience, um, one of the real advantages to that is that, uh, that he would challenge me all the time with being a, de a devil's advocate. Every time I felt like I walk into his office, I had a failed experiment, he'd always be really enthusiastic. And every time I would come in with these great results, he would always, always like, wow, you didn't do this control or that. You know, and, and actually, I think that's exactly what I needed at the time. I needed someone to really guide me through the thinking method that would say, how do you do a well-controlled experiment? And by well-controlled, it's not just that you think this is going to happen, and so you set up the controls for that. That's pretty easy to do, but when you end up getting a result that wasn't this, then <coughs> it was realizing that you don't have all the controls for these other options. And to try to get me to, and get a student altogether into thinking about how do you set up really a controlled experiment so that no matter what the outcome, you're gonna be able to interpret your data. Um, that I think is still, if I look back, it was certainly all I learned as a graduate student but looking back, it sort of has held me well in terms of tackling other, other scientific questions. And it's a matter of you learn enough, and um, maybe the advantage there is that I wasn't working in a, on a system that I was really passionate about as a graduate student, and so, um, nor as an undergraduate student, and so I wasn't locked into uh, to working in that way just because I had been exposed to it. And I think often we make choices based on what we've had, not choices based on really thinking it through and say, what do I really want to do? What really excites me? And there's so much out there that, that you learn about that, um, that I think keeping your mind open about change and about challenges is, is a good thing. Yeah, I think there's like a science philosophy called strong inference, which talks exactly about mm. this, like mm. designing your experiments where it's not just to prove what you want to prove, but like consider all the possibilities and rule them out systematically. Uh, if anyone actually hasn't read this paper, it's like from 1958 or something. 
Actually, it was 1964. A strong inference. Really, really great. I'm um, going to read it. <laughs> uh, so you said, like, okay, choosing someone. I, I think I'd kind of disagree with, like, mm. I think people who are really good teachers will often make good supervisors because if they put that mm. effort into teaching, yeah. it usually translates yeah. to good supervision and mentoring. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but what reasons would you have now? Like, say, if you were you know, an undergrad in today's science, how would you choose your supervisor for graduate school or yeah. choose where you want to do your postdoc? Yeah, I think it's, I mean, to, and there I guess I would choose, I would choose differently. I think mm -hmm. for a student, um, the requirements that you need to learn as a student are somewhat different than as a postdoc. Um, for a student, I think you want to be challenged. You want somebody who's definitely going to challenge you and not to shy away from someone who's not going to be really rigorous about, about how they're approaching science. I think you want to work with someone who is, who is exceptional as a scientist um, and, uh, and someone who's not going to be, who's going to be tough um, effectively um, to really not let you get away with doing a sloppy experiment or you know, cutting corners or the like. Um, and, and I agree with you there that, that you know, in, in, in reflecting back on it, it's really, you know, it's choosing someone who had patience and time to really train me through, challenge my thinking um, that was important. And perhaps where I would change things slightly is, um, is I think it would be better perhaps to be, to have really thought through what is it that I wanted to do a little bit earlier in my career because, because I was making decisions based on, on rather haphazard decisions that were my own decisions, but I never really, I never thought about finding out what other people, what do the other students in the lab think. Um, finding out what the atmosphere of the lab is, um, doing rotations in, in people's lab, exposing myself to really finding out, doing my homework and finding out more about, about an advisor. I happen to have chose someone who I think, reflecting back, um, I learned a lot from, but, um, but I'm not sure that I did all my homework. I think I was a yeah. little lucky along those lines. For postdoc, I think it's more important that you spend some time to think about what is it that you're really excited about of all the various things. It's not just what you know, what you've done as a graduate student, but what things really excite you. Um, because if you're looking ahead to say, being in academia, um, and some of us go in at age 18 and we never get out and we don't want to get out and and if you're that kind of a person then um, Then you really want to you really want to pursue what you're really excited about and um, and for me, I still like that thread of of the biomedical research side of it I had been working on bacterial sporulation as a graduate student, and um, I liked the fact that I could figure out how I, that I now knew how all these antibiotics worked. And so I thought, okay, so I'm still thinking biomedical. And, um, and as I mentioned uh, in my talk, it was really, I was listening to a seminar, and I really thought, this is really cool stuff. And I, 
and um, I didn't. I, I I was working on bacteria, and here was somebody working on human, and um, and I and I thought, well, I really wanted to have a cell culture system. Um, I was trained like a biochemist, thinking about how things worked. I liked to know how things work, um, and I thought, well, then it would be nice to have a system that I could pick apart. I thought I wanted to study growth and differentiation, but I didn't like the idea that most of the cell culture systems then and still now were immortalized cell lines or transformed cell lines. And I thought, if I ever want to understand what's abnormal, I need to know what normal is first. And, and here was a system where, where I could do that. And, and so it was really sort of pursuing. And then it was, MIT was a, uh, it was a great place. They had a good, a good environment, um, lots of good scientists, lots of good postdocs, um, and uh, and it was high-powered science. And I, I wanted to delve into that. I also liked the fact that when I was trained, I was trained in biochemistry and chemistry, and here was an advisor who had his MD. He didn't have a PhD, and. Um, and he was a quintessential cell biologist. And I thought, that's what I was weak in. And if I really want to go in that direction, you don't want to just do more of the same. You want to you want to try a different system or a different organism, either a different system or a different organism. You want to say, where, where are my strengths, where are my weaknesses? And you want to focus on those weaknesses, because where else are you going to have the opportunity to do that? You think, as an assistant professor, um, you're going to focus on those weaknesses, right? At that point, it's like you want to, you want to bring your strengths to bear. And so whatever, whatever things you still need to learn and still need to, to do and be challenged on, I think, is what you want to do. For your postdoc, I think that's a bit challenging in the like in the sense that I, often people have trouble identifying what their weaknesses are. Yeah. How did you go about that process? Well, for me, it was pretty obvious. I mean, <laughs> I, have, I have plenty of them, but I I had no I had no formal. I've never taken. I still haven't taken embryology. I haven't taken developmental biology haven't taken cell biology. I mean, I, there were, I had so many deficiencies in terms, of the, in terms of biology, so now I'm head of the laboratory of cell biology development, <laughs> but, you know, but I had none of those things. And so, um, and I just, I just wasn't comfortable with biology. There were so many variables in biology. I still was struggling with, with getting used to the, the messiness of an in vivo, in vivo system, and um, and so uh, that was sort of something that that I really wanted to to learn, um, and uh, and I think it, and then you know in terms of sort of being having that comfort zone with regards to molecular tackling molecular mechanisms, it is nice to sort of say, well, what do I need to be able to do that? And back then, it, a cell culture system was was useful to have as a as a complement to to an in vivo system. So, kind of the other side of this coin now, what do you look for when you're choosing a graduate student? Hmm. Um, well, we have, in contrast, I think, to the to the uh, UBC system, um, 
we, we do rotations. So, so students have to apply to the program, they don't apply to the individual. And they have to get into Rockefeller's program and then if they're in Rockefeller's program, then they can ask to do rotation in the laboratory. And um, I would have to say that part of what I look for is, um, is curiosity. I, it, curiosity is tough to teach. You know, if you don't have, if you're not curious about science, it's really tough to, it's really tough to, um, uh, to teach that. So a curiosity is something that I look for. Um, I look for um, people that are interactive. Um, interactiveness is, again, it's something that um, science, we don't operate in, in a vacuum. And so it's not to say that you, that you can't get through science focusing on your research and being quiet, but it is to say that when you focus on your research that you want to take an inner, you want to be curious and, and about other people's science, in, about your baymate's science, about things, other things going on in the lab or other things that, that, are, that are present at the university. Um, and so I think those kinds of traits are, are helpful. Um, someone who will get along well with others in the lab, and it's really talking about that too. It's that interactiveness, natural curiosity. Um, uh, I think those aspects are good. That, I mean, all the students that we get are smart. Um, not all the students have, have those characteristics. And then I guess the other side of it is, is that I end up getting a lot of, of graduate students who want to rotate in my lab and, and a lot of times it boils down to how passionate they are about working in my lab and, and really getting a sense of what do they want to learn from me, what do they want to learn from working on this system as opposed to some other, why don't you go work with David Alice or why don't you go work with Bob Rader or why don't you go work with someone else. Um, why do you want to work with me? And I have to, not that I ask them that directly, but I have to get a sense of, of how, how specifically excited they are about, about working in our lab. And do you have like similar criteria for postdocs? Because I'm mm. assuming they would be dire applying directly to you. Yeah, so the postdocs apply directly to me. And uh, there, there's sort of a certain level of, um, one thing that I feel is that um, publications um, matter. It, it, not everything has to be in cell nature or science, um, but, uh, but there has to be some indication that, that someone's published um, good papers. They have to be good papers. And, and the journal doesn't necessarily matter as much as the papers matter. And, um, and it's always nice if they're good papers and good journals, but, but basically um, uh, that tells me a lot about, about what they've learned as a student. And, they're, and, and at my stage where I'm running a relatively big lab, um, I can't spend much time um, with people. I want people to really establish themselves as, in, as independent scientists. That's what people are gonna have to do to, to make it to the next step anyway. And so, um, so they have to have achieved a certain level of 
of um, self-motivation, of independence, of, of accomplishment as a, as a student to be, able to, um, to be able to go on to the next step. And then at that level, the letters also matter. Um, if if uh, I letters of recommendation, if someone has really impressed the people that are that you're asking um, letters for, then uh, then that makes a difference. And at that stage, then we invite them, we invite them in for an interview, and uh, they give a seminar. They meet with me, but they meet with everybody else in the lab as well. And again, it's a it's a collective. I make a bargain with my with my lab. It's sort of I will let them participate in choosing, but but they have an obligation then for people that they're that they bring into the lab or that they vote to bring into the lab that those people are um, that they're willing to spend time with them in helping them get get things going, get things off the ground, teaching them what they need to know about a new system, and then. And then not to forget that when they're senior and they're thinking about their faculty position that they got a lot of help starting out. And, um, and so I think that works extremely well. It's a really interactive group. Because you can put, you can put uh, 10, 15 people together who are brilliant and you might not accomplish anything in your lab, right? And, and I think that the difference is that if you put 10 or 15 people who are smart and talented, motivated, but they may not be the most brilliant people, um, if they work well together, they interact well together, each of them are thinking about each other's science and offering suggestions, then the science goes a lot, a lot better. So, so what's the makeup of your lab currently? Um, Makeup being sort of, uh, if I talk about where people came from, um, so given my own background, uh, it wouldn't probably be surprising to say, I don't care. <laughs> and so I, I don't care whether they worked on bacteria, whether they worked on yeast genetics, whether they worked on worm genetics, fly genetics, biochemistry, cell culture, uh, whatever. Um, that's like the least important um, to me. And in fact, I, what I like about it is that they'll bring, and that's what I think people look for, is that they'll bring something interesting. Their way of thinking is going to be different, and I already know that they're, that they're interested in trying something new. So we have very few, um, very few people trained in skin unless they are neurobiologists or immunologists or somebody different than me where we've got 65 different cell types in the skin so they can be coming from very different backgrounds. But it has to be sort of something different and looking for people to really, uh, who are really set to challenge themselves. Um, and then the composition is um, I've always liked students. I've always had a lot of a lot of students in the lab. So we have uh, I currently have seven graduate students, and then now nowadays for the last 10, 15 years or so, we usually have about two to one ratio in postdocs. So 14, 15 postdocs and seven students. So it's a big lab, um, but uh, but it's got a lot of fail-safe um, safety nets and in there 
very few people uh, don't don't get make what or achieve what they want to do. So you talked about like publications and uh, like you mentored Cell and I believe you're an editor for mm, Cell, like yeah. Cell Stem Cell editorial board. Yeah. So like, how did you get in this position? <laughs> Somebody asked me to do it. These are not. <laughs> these these are not. These are not accolades. It's <laughs> responsibility that you end up doing for the sake of of your fellow scientists, like serving on a study section. Um, if you want to see science published in the best possible way, then it's, it's useful to participate in that process because I always feel that if I'm reviewing a paper, I realize that a lot of people probably put, I think do put, put me as a sort of please exclude this person. Maybe, <laughs> maybe it's because of the rigor, but I, I often think that what's important is that you're applying the same rigorous standards to your own work as you do to other people's work. I think what's really important is that you're, um, that, that you don't have a double standard there. Um, and, and, um, and so I think it, and I always feel that I, on any given review process, I leave the door open. Um, I really hate to get, I think we all hate to get reviews that are, come back saying, well, this really isn't appropriate for this journal, or this work belongs in some specialized journal, or whatever, and, and now you have no choice. Right? You, no one is telling me what it is going to take to be able to, to get it published in, in, in a constructive way. So I always feel that, that those kinds of things are important and the only way we're gonna make things better is if, as a community, is, is if we all participate. Yeah, so uh, I guess my question then is, how, uh, like, how do you go about the process of putting a paper together? Uh, um, yeah, <laughs> yeah, so that's a part, that's probably the most difficult part, is, um, is sort of the level at which you don't ever want to miss an interpretation, and I'm always, I'm always probably, if I err, I want to, I want to err on the side of going a little bit over the interpretation rather than under the interpretation. Um, so what do you mean about, by that? Mm, thinking about what, is your, what do your results mean? What's the significance of what you've just done? And, and what are they really telling us about biology? What are they telling us about you're studying a biological question and you've got these data. Um, what does that mean? What, what do those results mean? And, and, um, and I think it's good to speculate in the discussion. Uh, you don't want to speculate in the results section. Um, but you do want to really think through what it means because so often you'll read something that's really exciting uh, in the literature and someone doesn't realize what's exciting about it. And then until someone else points it out and then and then they'll say, well, I figured that out a long time ago, right? But you didn't say it, and you didn't present it, and you didn't think about it. And so I, I, I always try to um, challenge the students and postdocs in the lab to really think through what do their data mean. And I think that, um, that helps more than anything, uh, 
it's sort of putting together the abstract before even starting to write the results sections because um, because in that abstract you've got sort of 120 or 150 words to say what did you just do and what's what's the biggest most important finding um, and then after that actually putting it together uh, is is relatively straightforward um, not to say that the abstract's not going to continually change as you start to go through your data and realize, well, this is actually more important than this. Um, and then the other aspect is to start putting together a paper. Start to put together those figures. You always want to wait till the last minute before you start to write the paper and put it together. You always want to get that last experiment done. But when you start to put together the paper, you start to realize what's missing, what control is just should have been there and I didn't do it and or what piece of data I'm missing and you, and, and you really can't tell that until you actually are starting to put together the paper. Um, so I think those go into it. Um, and the other is all those different controls. If you can demonstrate something three different ways rather than one way, it's always better. Um, so yeah. Do we have any questions? Yeah? What is the best way to transition between fields like you did? Um, yeah. Uh, being, I think being passionate to go after it. Um, so, for instance, when I went to Howard Green's lab, um, I, um, I really liked, actually, I really thought I wanted to tackle um, gene expression and, and changes in proteins as cells differentiate, changes in messenger RNA is it's at the gene expression level. We didn't have any markers for the stem cells. We, didn't, we knew they differentiated, but we didn't have markers for the differentiation. We didn't know whether that was controlled at the gene expression level, was it controlled at the mRNA level. Um, and so that's what I wanted to do, and there was actually a student who I thought was really brilliant in the lab, and and worked day and night doing that. And I thought I thought he was really smart. And then Howard kicked him out of the lab, and I thought, <laughs> oh, um, but that's really what I wanted to do. And um, and so then I wasn't really sure whether did he get kicked out of the lab because of other reasons or because he wanted to do that. And and he actually went to work with Bob Weinberg and and um, discovered RAS, so I thought, no, he really was <laughs> smart. He, did, he was good. But, um, but, the other, um, but the other side of that is that, so what I was doing was because I could pure, because I was trained as a chemist, a biochemist, um, we didn't have, it was in the days before having biotech companies, and so we needed epidermal growth factor to culture these cells, and we got them from purifying EGF out of rat submaxillary glands. So very early on when I first arrived, I got this shipment on my desk of frozen rat submaxillary glands, and I was sort of in charge of purifying it. And what I realized is actually for me it was no, no big deal, and so I purified it, and, and then I got kudos for purifying it. And then, but then Howard Green thought, well, this would be really nice for me to see if there were any other growth factors besides EGF that, um, that affected the growth of the cells. And, and so 
I really didn't want to work on that, but I thought, well, it's kind of an interesting project. Only the problem was that there were two places where you could, where you could get the growth factor. One is out of serum, and the other is out of urine. And so um, Howard went the cheaper route, and so I was really, you know, this is like, really, I thought, you know, he looked at PCAM on my record and took it literally or something, but I was like collecting everybody's, like giving everybody these cups, all my colleagues in the lab, and, you know, you're not gonna make like a lot of friends this way. And then, and then, like any day that I was doing my purifications, people would walk into the cold room and, oh, Lainey's doing an experiment again, and they walk back out again. And so, um, but I stuck with it to the level of sort of saying, well, okay, um, okay, I did all these fractionations and I tested all these different fractions, and and what I have is this complex mix. Um, running is high molecular weight or low, I guess it was low molecular weight complex mix and I didn't want to take it any further and so then he said, well, what would you like to do? And I said, I'd really like to look at gene expression and then he said, well, why don't you look at intermediate filament assembly and so I worked on, I took a look at those papers, it gives me a stack of papers, I took a look at those and I think sometimes you really have to you know, you, there's a level at which you don't want to irritate your advisor too much because you just started working with them. But, um, but there was a level at which I had to, you know, you have to balance that. You know, how much is someone going to let me have my, do what I want to do versus how much do I, because I don't know, maybe I'm trying to do something that really isn't a good idea. And so he has the experience, I have the passion of what I want to do. and. And it's really uh, important to find that out. And, and I think for me, that's, that was what I did. And, and for a while, it wasn't clear that that was gonna be a good idea, but uh, I didn't know, and my advisor really didn't want me to work on that. And so, but MIT, you know, you take advantage of your environment. And again, if you are resourceful, then I didn't know how to make a reticulocyte lysate prep to be able to do translation. So somebody down the hall had done that. So hook up with that person. I didn't know how to purify or, or we had to make oligo-DT cellulose. I mean, all the things that you guys just buy and now they're kits, right? We had to make all that stuff from scratch. And so, and so literally, you know, there's tons of stuff I didn't know how to do and my advisor didn't know how to do it. And so, but, it, but you take advantage of it. And if it didn't exist at MIT, I would be, now if I've got a, for instance, with the ChIP-seq, the first time we did that, contact Rick Young, it's like, can I send somebody up there because we need to learn how to do this. And I, did, I didn't want to just try a recipe, I wanted to learn the latest techniques. And, and you, you really, you get used to that and realizing again, I can't stress it more, but Science doesn't operate in a vacuum, and you don't want to operate in a vacuum. And if you have, you're going to have difficulty making a transition. Um, I had a huge hurdle making a transition. I couldn't walk into a lab where people were doing it. I had to walk in knowing what I wanted to do and and trying to get that going. But but it taught me the importance of going upstairs, downstairs, across the street. Uh, to other places, and so that when I got to Chicago, and it was in the days of, of DNA recombinant technology, and we hadn't, I had never made a 
the next step was cDNA library, and I had no clue as, as to how to make it. Nobody at Chicago was doing DNA recombinant technology at the time, but you, you've done, if you've done that for your postdoc, you've done different things. To me, it was just, okay, San Francisco, that's where all the, that's where all the DNA recombinant technology was happening, and you just pick up the phone and, and call and start getting things, and, and, uh, and you just get used to the fact that this is what I need to do to, to move my science forward. So, yeah, it's, it's no different than, I mean, but you don't want to just pick up a book. You can't, you know, science isn't published like that, right? So you can't find that book. So your book has to be your, your networking um, that, that really gives that for you. I think, go ahead. Oh, um, I think this is a really interesting idea, this like kind of subversion of your supervisor sometimes, where like if you have a really good idea, you should kind of <laughs> follow through. Like when, to that moment for you, what kind of gave you the confidence to be like, yeah, like this is what I want to do? How did you kind of put your foot down? Because I imagine that's yeah. not an easy step to undergo. Yeah. It was the fear of winding up in an anatomy department when I didn't want to be <laughs> in an anatomy department. I felt like. I spent my whole life training as a chemist and a biochemist, and I wanted to go into biology, but I didn't want to. I didn't want to be working on growth factors, and I didn't want to be working on uh, filament assembly. Although we did a lot of that with different approaches, but I didn't want to use the approaches that I was being sort of funneled into. And, um, and it's really that, that level. You've got to decide what you really want to do and, and what other people are going to force you to do or, or, or guide you into. And there's got to be a point at which you know enough to say, I think this would work. And I had to know enough to realize that there were people down the hall that were isolating messenger RNA and translating it. And, that there were there was Raj Bhandari was down the hall doing RNA and RNA sequencing and and there were enough people and then and then I found out about about David Baltimore's lab across the street and Phil Sharp and then I started to realize okay the infrastructure is there I can do this mm -hmm. and it's at that point you've got to find something you've got to do enough networking and you have to know enough you have to do enough reading and enough enough working on a system to know this is going to work even if your advisor doesn't necessarily think that this is the right direction, you're, you're going to have a different perspective than your advisor. And that's the whole point, right? You don't want to be a clone of, of your advisor and all you guys are coming from a different perspective. I, my postdocs are doing things that I don't necessarily think are possible and, and half of which I don't know about. And and um, and and they won't tell me unless it's starting to work, right? <laughs> and, um, and so I think that. But on the other hand, it's it's really that it's that level of, of realizing that um, that you have to you have to know enough to make a wise decision. But once you're comfortable about doing that, then it's. Um, I guess I've said this multiple times on multiple occasions, but it's really that, that um, aim of, of being comfortable with being uncomfortable because science is not 
a comfortable field and you don't, and exciting science is certainly not comfortable. Um, but the more you get comfortable with, with taking risks and taking challenges, then the easier it is to do in, in the course of your career. But it sounds like you're also selecting people, like I feel like if you're a very curious individual, that's kind of going to be the natural progression of that curiosity. Yeah, I have to say I, I, I can't be too hard on any postdoc who comes in and really takes does something totally original and um, or wants to do something completely original and um, and it might not be the avenue that I would take but um, but generally I'm willing to give I, I, I'm willing to give a much broader uh, I, it's not really a leash because I don't feel like anybody <laughs> is leashed in my lab they're completely unleashed but um, but it's that uh, sort of freedom to to really explore and um, I don't want to see people falter so I don't want to see people explore for year year after year as a postdoc and then realize that they're not going to be able to to achieve what they want to achieve but that freedom to to develop something I'm, I'm usually very supportive of so now I the job market for kind of young PhDs or postdocs is a bit different than when you went into yeah. uh, be a professor and what it is today. Um, have you been on selection committees for you know assistant oh, yeah. professors yeah. at uh, at Rockefeller University? And can you talk a bit about what you guys look for uh, in a postdoc to be like? Yeah, you guys come be a professor. Yeah, um, maybe all of the same that I've just uh, described in terms of looking for in a postdoc with the exception of, of, um, of, well, I've even mentioned that with the importance of even being unique from the lab that you're coming from. And so for me, that's pretty easy to do with regard to the kinds of people that I'm bringing into the lab. Um, we now have, I now have a physicist, two biomedical engineers, um, the token yeast geneticist, <laughs> um, the token nematode geneticist, several fly geneticists. Um, and so, you know, you put those kinds of, and, and it had to be the genomic, whole, whole genome-wide screen that I talked about today. That can only happen from somebody who's coming from a fly background um, or a worm background because nobody else, anybody from the mouse field would just say this is not possible. and. Um, and so it's that kind of that kind of putting things together, and something interesting will happen. Um, and uh, and so I think for me, the kind of people that I'm training, I'm training automatically, are going to be different from what I'm uh, from what who I am and what I'm specifically interested in. Um, I try to give postdocs enough sort of time to carve out what they're going to do versus what we're going to do. Um, sometimes those boundaries are a bit hazy. Um, do you mean like they take their research into their labs? Oh yeah, they always do, yeah. And so, it, and, and so I think, you know, there came a point in my career where, where I had to be doing this and now I feel like um, that's sort of counter to to training somebody to be, to be unique, um, and um, and so you really, I think you, 
I, I really feel like to, to really train postdocs to go out in academia, which is what I think, it's, it's what I've done best in my career and it's, and it's what I like to do the most. Um, you have to give the freedom to develop something and, um, and if that development turns out to be something that's also valuable for the lab collectively because a lot of this is multiple different ideas and, and inputs coming in from different people in the lab, um, there has to be enough freedom there to operate where someone goes off and, and starts, uh, starts something different. So either if nobody in the lab is interested in pursuing something, then someone takes the entire project. If someone else has some interests in that overlap, then we sort of carve, carve out like what is it the postdoc is going to be doing and then, and then what is it that maybe a student or, or a postdoc would be doing in my lab. So when do you kind of negotiate, you know, who kind of gets this, like, who can take what where? Yeah, at the very end. Because that's where I think it's terribly counterproductive to have someone develop something in the lab and saying, I'm taking this, <laughs> right? And, um, and, and two years before they're ready to leave, and, and they, don't, you know, they don't know whether they're going to take that or not take that. And in terms of interacting with other people in the lab, I think that's like that becomes a real problem. So I really am o always saying, um, what you have to do is trust my record, and and not have that as a as an attitude. And um, and by and large, that works that works very well. Um, training your your track record is something that sort of gives people an idea of of. Uh, is she really going to let me develop my research career and be supportive of my research career, or, or does she become my um, competitor, competitor yeah. the minute that, that, that I leave the lab kind of thing? So, um, so I think people know that when they're coming to the lab that they're going to end up um, being supported by me in terms of mentoring them through to the their faculty position. So then this probably becomes one of the most important things to look for is like where did the graduate students or postdocs, if you're applying to a lab, where did they end up, right? Did everyone kind of just do postdocs and then they left and you know no one's heard of them yeah. since they opened bakeries yeah. or yeah. are they Yeah, right, professors? exactly, exactly. I mean, certainly I have a self-vested interest in suggesting that everybody would do that because because the track record that we have amassed, but on the other hand, I really think that is um, that is what you want to do in terms of of that. And not everybody in the room is going to want the same thing, um, but you have to look at if I want to be publishing these kinds of papers, or if I want to have this kind of position later on down the road, then there should be somebody quite a few people that if someone's senior, quite a few people that someone is trained that, that uh, where other people are in those kinds of positions. For instance, where I would be doing very badly would be biotech. I've never started a company. Um, I've mentored very few people that end up in biotech companies or in pharmaceutical companies. And so, and yet there are some very, very talented people at major universities across the, across the world that have. Um, so it's not a matter of 
you know, of, of whether someone's good or not good. It's just that if that's what someone wants, then, then I'm probably a bad example for that because I have no interest in starting a company. Um, and I wouldn't know how to even go about it because I've never done it. Um, whereas a lot of my colleagues, in fact, have started companies and that's, and, um, and developed that. So, um, so I think those are, are things, you know, you have to decide what do I, where do I want to be and follow that kind of trajectory. So do you file patents for like any of the things, like you're dealing with chemotherapeutics or hair follicles and, yeah. you know, there is industry associated with that. Yeah, yeah, we do every now and then, but yeah. I have to say that it's, um, it hasn't been a burning desire. And so uh, probably the number of things that we have patented are many fewer than um, the numbers of things that we probably should have patented. Um, so I think it's, it's again, you know, it's, uh, yeah. I don't know, my father once told me that it's, um, that if you wanted to be wealthy, you would have gone into being a medical doctor, <laughs> or you would have gone into being a lawyer, and, or an MBA, or whatever, and I'm just passionate about the science that I do. Um, I didn't realize at the time, because I thought he was absolutely right, that there'd be no, that it wasn't lucrative at all to go into science, but actually by biological sciences, I look at my husband, who's a philosopher, and there's a tremendous difference in terms of, of the money that, that we have in, in our field versus the, and the salaries that we get in our fields versus that of, of, uh, of philosophers. It's like, oh yeah, I have friends who are in philosophy doing their PhD and they, they really are poor students, like yeah. biology students yeah. joke about it, I think, but it's, yeah. it's a different lifestyle altogether. Very different, yeah. yeah. Um, do you have any other questions? I feel like... Yeah, yeah, please. Um, you talked at the beginning about the interface between medicine and research. And so I was yeah. wondering in that vein, I know your experience comes mostly from the United States, but what are your thoughts on MD PhD programs? Mm. Uh, the pros and cons kind of of those from the view of a principal investigator. Yeah, almost all pros and very few cons. Um, and I've trained a number of MD PhDs. And <clears throat> what varies is what they what balance they end up doing. I think what is inevitable, I've trained both MD-PhDs for their PhDs in my laboratory and also had a number of people doing postdocs um, after having gotten MD-PhDs. And what I can say is that it changes people's thinking. They're much more aware of the medical implications of a particular problem. They're much more aware of, say, metabolism or physiology or something that all of a sudden comes into play um, that uh, we might be studying the skin, but, uh, but what about this that could be abnormal that's affecting the skin? Um, all these kinds of questions. I think as, as a, that that MD training is really, is really valuable to give people that perspective. We ended up working out the genetic basis a number of years ago of a whole variety of different skin disorders. And I knew nothing at the time. I had to buy a dermatology textbook and thumb my way through and try to diagnose my mice versus the pathology. And, and I feel now very comfortable with the, uh, with the balance. But even there, I, don't, I still rely on my MD-PhDs 
um, for certain perspective um, in our group meetings that uh, that I don't that I can't bring after all the years of training of not having any of that formal training. Um, I think where it, where it differs is that is how are you going to balance? And um, one of my former MD PhDs, my first MD PhD is Tony Latai who. Uh, works on uh, apoptosis at, and is on the faculty at Harvard Medical School. I have another who's <coughs> who's in uh, at University of Toronto actually in uh, and now studies muscle um, degenerative disorders. Um, uh, they really do active research. Um, Tony's research is is absolutely state of the art, and um, and yet he still sees patients. Jim still sees patients um, doing the muscle degenerative work. Those are the most, those are my first and second MD-PhD, so that there's one aspect of the length of time that it takes. Um, and, uh, and yet I always look at it as, as, again, you know, 18 to whenever. And in the United States, that can just go on. Um, some of my colleagues are in their 90s, <laughs> still working in the labs and still running research research programs, so there's no limit in the United States as long as the mind still works and as long as the motivation is still there. So, um, so I think, you know, that's kind of, in that sense, it's almost irrelevant, um, recognizing that for a lot of people it's probably doesn't seem irrelevant. Um, but um, uh, Cedric Blompain, for instance, has done very, very good work, came to my lab as a postdoc with an MD-PhD um, and had done his residency and just decided after working in the lab that that's what he really wanted to do. He really wanted to just do science. He doesn't see any patients anymore. Um, Diana Bulletin uh, went on to do her clinical training in, um, in dermatology and she's a dermatologist at the University of Chicago, does very little research but, um, but mostly clinical. Um, so what do you think the so cons there's a are? Balance. Uh, there's a balance. Um, I think the cons, uh, the cons are the length of time and the comfortableness that somebody has with regards to that length of time because I think um, the danger becomes if you have an MD-PhD and you really want to do research and you don't go after a full postdoc, then I think it ends up, you end up sort of more or less the majority of the people that I've had in my lab who have done even a year or two of postdocs, very few of them are doing anything other than being private practitioners. Mm -hmm. That's just a, the way it turns out. And so um, you almost have to, if you want to still balance, um, you have to do that residency and then you have to do a full postdoc. I have one now who's done his residency and is doing a full postdoc with me and he'll be another like Tony, only I, I trained him as a postdoc, not as a, as a student. Um, but it's like that, you have to be sort of prepared for that, mentally prepared for that long haul. You can't really, you can't cut corners. Yeah. And, um, and so it's a real commitment. So I think the downside of it is perhaps the age that you end up reaching before you end up having an independent laboratory um, if you really want to do it right. And um, to me, 
I wouldn't worry about it, but that's me and a lot of people do worry about those things that are that are entering into those fields. And, and there are some that have thought they were gonna be able to do that and 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 given up at the end mm. of the road. So um, So we're kinda of running out of time. Uh, my last question is, do you have any like personal philosophies or kind of little snippets of, you know, like a nugget of knowledge that you like to pass on to <laughs> graduate <laughs> students? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I do. Um, I think uh, what's really, it's, and this is counterintuitive, I think that um, it's important not to be at the bench 24-7. Um, you can be at the bench 24-7 for long stretches of time. Um, so I'm not arguing not being at the bench 24-7, but to be at the bench 24-7 for, for your whole five years or, or whatever in graduate school or in post-docking um, without having any other outside activities or interests I think probably is a mistake because sooner or later you're gonna burn out and secondly, you're not gonna be gaining that broader interactiveness that you will gain if you play an instrument, if you don't play an instrument, you go and listen to concerts, or you go to art museums, or you go out and play some kind of sports uh, with your friends, or you have some traveling interest, or you do something. There's something in your life, you're a gardener, whatever it is or an artist, but whatever it is, um, I actually think that there are times, um, there are times that I feel like my science is better because I have, uh, if I told you as a student, I, I took extended vacations when, <laughs> I, when I was a student. Um, I mean, six weeks my first year, I realized that was probably a mistake. Uh, my advisor wasn't too pleased, but um, but that and then the next time it was sort of four weeks, and then after that I had passed my prelims. My advisor still wasn't too pleased, and I passed my prelims, and I thought, well, heck, I, you know, I just did these big travels, and I passed my prelims, so I'm going to keep doing this, and and I've kept doing that all my life. I mean, when I was an assistant professor, I was. Uh, going on, I just met my husband now, 20, we're on our 27th year together after we finally got married, which was after a long time. But, um, but he was going on, he had organized this, this trip to Africa and he was going on some walking safari and I'd never been on walking safari, but to me it sounded really interesting um, until I arrived and they said, when I say tree, find the nearest tree and climb it quickly. And I thought, oh God, I'm not sure I can remember this from my youth. But, um, but, but basically I've done that all my life. I've, I've liked that and, and we go to ballet, we go to opera, we go to concerts and, and, um, and I feel like um, my science isn't suffering because I've done those things in my life. I feel like it's better. Somewhere you've gotta gain that ability to still be fresh in your ideas and to still be creative and to still have the excitement and the passion. And I don't think you're gonna get it if you're like this at the laboratory bench. Um, and so I guess that maybe is a good topic to, to end on. 
Um, Thank you very much. Yep. Well, that wraps up this episode of the Jobs and Science interview series. Thanks for listening. If you have any comments for our podcast, please pop by our website, www.grasspods.com slash Our next episode should be out uh, this month. We're going to be recording the interview in a few days, and it's, it's a really exciting one. It's, it's more about a student who's started up his own company based out of Vancouver and how he's looking to change the world one surgical drill bit at a time. Take it easy. Thank you.